All right, welcome to Faith Church. Glad you're with us, whether you are kind of new around here. Man, this is your home. We're glad you're with us in the room and online. It's going to be a good day. Hey, open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, if you didn't bring a printed copy with you but want to follow along digitally, totally cool. Grab your phone, scan the QR code on the screen, and you can follow along with us while you're getting there. I uh, want to remind you, hey, we are in our journey to Easter uh, kind of season leading up to Easter Sunday, Resurrection and uh, we're just finishing week one, and uh, we've got resources available. During the week, we're spending some time in the scriptures and prayer and dedicating ourselves through fasting. Um, each week, there's a different kind of kind of fast that we're encouraging you to consider. And uh, we're fasting during the week, and then on the weekends, we're encouraging you to gather in homes for a meal, to celebrate, to laugh, to eat good food, and to do a communion liturgy there in your home. We got to do it last night with some friends. We laughed a whole lot, ate really good food, and uh, did it with kiddos around and all. It was a wonderful, just kind of special time. And uh, so maybe today, as you go out to eat after service, perhaps, with your family, friends, Maybe pull up the digital version of the guide, the Journey to Easter guide. And right there as the meal is ending, walk through the liturgy together or do it tonight with friends, whatever. Make it work into your life as we journey to Easter together. All right, Matthew 26, we're going to start in verse 1. I'm going to ask that in honor of God's word today that we all stand. We stand to demonstrate and take a posture that honors the word of God. I'll read out loud. You can follow along either on the screens, in front of you, whatever your eyesight prefers. Matthew 26, starting at verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. When Jesus had finished saying all of these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, Passover begins in two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. At that same time, the leading priests and elders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany and at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it over his head. The disciples were indignant when they saw this. What a waste, they said. It could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, replied, Why criticize this woman for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. She has poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deeds will be remembered and discussed. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priest and asked, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. And from that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, before you're seated, seated will you say this after me? Thanks be to God, for his word is faithful and true. Amen. You can be seated. Today, I want to walk you through kind of these three sections of the reading that we just had. And I want to point out to you the plot, the passion, and the pragmatism. We talk about the plot, the passion, and the pragmatism. The plot. Uh, what we find here is that it starts with Jesus and his disciples saying, hey, some things are about to go down. Dun, dun, dun. Every good story and retelling of something has twists and turns, plot twists, if you will, 
that move the story along and shift the tone and the timber and kind of give you a hint that things are about to shift and change. One of the things that you'll see here in the plot, that the plot involves a few different types of people. You have the religious leaders, you have the crowds and the people that followed Jesus, and of course, obviously, you have Jesus himself. And these people played a significant role in the plot that was beginning to unfold in our eyes and in our text. Now, we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew together. This is episode number 50 of this collection where we're talking about the King Jesus Gospel. All in all, we'll have spent 52 Sundays studying this collection and studying the King Jesus Gospel. And as we get to this section of the story, things are shifting and turning. And one of the things that the writer of this gospel is doing is pointing out several contrasting elements to help us better contextualize and understand some core truths that he wants us to see and grasp. The first contrast that you see is between the priests and the people. There's a difference. They couldn't be more different from each other. The the priests, these were the religious elite who were anti the way of Jesus. They were religious, they were the gatekeepers, they were the rule keepers, they had high demands of people who they expected to live a certain way. They were legalistic, they were controlling, they were manipulative, they were greedy, they were selfish, and they were supposed to be the ones shepherding and guiding the people of God, the nation of Israel, to the arrival and point out the arrival of the Messiah when he came. But they missed him. Most of them missed them. They, they were the religious elite. They, they were always creating rules that were extra to the laws of God to try and get people to behave the way they wanted them to behave. Now, it's no different to this day. There are groups of people who come and claim the name of Jesus, and what they want to do is create rules and systems and structures and gatherings that make you behave they're comfortable with. They're all about behavior modification. Do these things, act this way, say this, do this. But Jesus kind of upends a lot of those things. They they were always adding extra layers of fencing to keep people from doing the right thing. And, And they missed the point of the laws actually entirely. They would be the people that say, when you come to church, you better dress up. If you don't have a suit on, you're not welcomed in the house of God because we bring God our best. And if that's the best you've got, you better get it better. And don't you dare wear a hat into the house of the Lord and pray with your hat on and worship with your hat on. And if grandma heard somebody preach the word of God standing on the stage with a hat on, she'd be rolling in her grave. She's not, I promise. They would demand external expressions while ignoring the internal transformation. So by all means, please take your hat off when you get in church to stand and worship and pray. But let's not really care about how many people we get upset at while not wearing a hat and getting upset that they're driving under the speed limit on Highway 69 and words fly out of our mouth. But by all means, take the hat off because that really indicates a clean, respectful heart. They were all about demonstrating that their life was changing without actually having their heart change. Now, make no mistake about it, friends. Following Jesus does involve your behavior changing. But it only changes because your heart is transformed into the identity of who Christ has made you to be in the first place. So it's not just about like, I can say the right things, recite the right things, and live however like hell I want to. And be okay. No, no, he's actually after your heart, embodying your life of faith in a way that honors him, which is the contrast to the people. The, 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 the Pharisees and the priests, they were concerned that the people would riot if they arrested Jesus during Passover. Why? Because the people were the ones following Jesus and were giving their wholehearted life devotion to him, to his ways, and were being transformed by Christ himself. 
See, the religious leaders wanted your devotion to be on them and your behavior to look like them. Jesus wanted the devotion based on the love that he gave devoting to them. And in return, they gave a life surrendered to him. Dallas Willard says it like this. The disciple is one who intent on becoming Christ-like. So and so dwelling in his faith and practice, systematically and progressively rearranges his affairs to that end. This is what we're called to be as the people of God. Disciples who rearrange our affairs, our priorities, our desires, our lifestyle to pursue and follow and live out the way of Jesus. This is a contrast between the devoted and the, those who were devouring those around him. They wanted different things. They were approaching different things, and they all centered around Jesus. Now, the, the priests were trying to trap Jesus. They, they'd been looking many, for many opportunities to trap Jesus, to arrest Jesus, uh, and, and to kill Jesus, because they didn't like what he had to say. And they came to this conclusion, you know what, let's not arrest him until after Passover because if we arrest him during Passover man it's going to be crazy and a riot so so here's our plan the only problem with their plan is it wasn't Jesus's plan Jesus had a different plan in fact at the very beginning of the text what did you read Jesus calls his disciples and says hey guys um, we just got done talking about being the vine of the branches I just got done telling you about what it's going to be like at the end of time and how you're supposed to respond when everything goes haywire in this world the time has now come because Passover is near for the Son of Man to be handed over, betrayed, beaten, and be crucified. It's going to happen during Passover. Why? Well, because Passover was a significant part in the story of God's people. What I love about this is that Jesus is saying, I get to give up my life. You don't get to take my life. I've come to fulfill the plan of the Father. You don't get to manipulate the plan of God. He's coming, and in fact, in John 10, 18, Jesus said it just this clearly. No one can take my life from me because I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to. And I can take it up again. Come on, resurrection. For this is what my Father has commanded. And Jesus knew Passover was here, it was now, and that's why he came. What do you mean that's why he came? I mean, Jesus came to be the final lamb of Passover who would be slain, pour out his blood, which now gives entry to life. See, the Passover started way back when, when the children of God were enslaved in Egypt and judgment was coming on the land and the judgment was death. And God said, if you're going to be my people, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And in this covenant, it's going to be sealed by the blood of a lamb. And when you kill the lamb, take the blood, paint it on the doorposts. And everyone in the house, when judgment comes, the, the death angel will Pass over your house, you will stay alive and experience life while everyone else receives judgment of death. Does that sound like any other judgment that's coming later on in the world? Yeah, because it's all a picture pointing to some real realities. L let me read it to you what the first Passover and what the lamb was all about in Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 1. This is what the scripture tells us. While the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, the Lord gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. In other words, this is the beginning point of your whole year. This is now your new year. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice. One animal for, which, for each household. Look at this. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood. In other words, in these moments as we journey to Easter, this idea of gathering in homes and sharing a meal with our friends and family goes all the way back to the very beginning celebration during this season and time. 
And he says, if you, you, your family's too small, well, get other families together so you can still participate. Then the animal you select must be one year old, either a sheep or a goat with no defects. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the fourth day of this first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. That same night, they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Don't eat any of the meat raw or boiled. The animal, including its head, legs, and internal organs, must be roasted over a fire. Don't leave any of it until the next morning. Burn whatever is not eating, which tells you something. Meat is good. Smoked meat is better. And you have to eat your greens even if it tastes bitter. That's what... That's like the divine command, eat yo vegetables. And all the parents said, amen. Come on, the, the, the Lord doesn't want you to boil it. He likes that smoked meat. Let's go, Traeger Nation. Come on, smoke in some good barbecue. The Passover lamb that was used always had to be prepared. But before Jesus, the Passover lamb, could die and be the sacrifice, he had to be prepared. And this is why the story of the woman coming in with the oil and the perfume and anointing Jesus is so significant. In fact, it's so significant, all four Gospels record an account like this. The details vary. The ultimate point remains the same. Now, some of you might be sitting back and say, wait a second, Pastor, you mean the story is represented all four Gospels, but like the details are different? How can we trust the Bible to be accurate if the details like that are different? Let me ask you a question. When you go to an event, are you the only person at the event or are there other people witnessing said event? Normally, there's other people. Is their perspective and view from where they're sitting and experiencing and the people around them the exact same as what you're experiencing with the people that you're sitting around and the vantage point and the viewpoint that you have of the event itself? No, it's different. Same event, different perspective. This is one of the reasons why I believe in the validity and the trustworthiness of the scriptures, especially the gospels. Because each of the writers of the gospels are writing for a specific purpose, weaving the truths of the, the main point of each story and account and interaction that Jesus has with people in order to help tell a broader story about redemption to the audience that they're writing to. Same events, different emphasis. A different point, a different reality. If you ever got into a car wreck, your view on what happened is probably different than maybe what the, how the officer who showed up at the scene is going to record and experience the event. Some same details, but they're going to talk about it a little bit differently. The officer is going to be a little bit shorter in his description. You probably aren't going to be so short in your description. You're going to have some other colorful words about the other person on the other side and how troubling it is and problematic it is and the pain that you now feel. You're going to tell a different kind of story. Friends, I believe that the Bible is the word of God and it is inspired for us. And there are many people who want to say you can't trust the Bible because Mark writes one thing and then there's an error in Matthew over here and it's written this way. Friends, the Bible is the most trustworthy book of antiquity that we have in human possession. It is so trustworthy. In fact, I want you to know that God's word is not only inspired, God's word is a library, it's not a book. It's one unified story though. It has stood the test of time, even though it is really 66 different books written 
on three different continents in three different languages over a period of approximately 1,500 years by more than 40 authors who came from a variety of walks of life, the Bible remains one elaborate and unified story of God's work of redemption. The, the Bible is divinely given, but it was humanly composed. It was humans who composed the scriptures and the writings that we have. Now, when I say inspired, I don't mean divine trance. Like they woke up one day in a trance and all of a sudden they were writing, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And they just like, their body was overtaken in some trance. That's not what it means to be divinely inspired. Nor is it some angelic dictation where an angel showed up and said, hey Moses, write this down. Let me tell you what it is. Start writing now. You can write in shorthand or long form. I don't care. Just don't miss a word. Right now I'm ready. Go. And they were just smoke pouring from the papyrus as they write frivolously to not miss a single word. That's, that's not what I think is meant by divinely inspired. I, I want you to realize and understand inspired as a conceptual guidance. Inspiration in terms of inspired thought that guides the author to compose what they compose. Michael Bird in his book, Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible. Fantastic quick read for those who want to get a little geeky on the technicality of scripture. Says this, God's guiding and leading human minds was on the conceptual level. That is, general notions, broad ideas, the building blocks for words and sentences, direction of a person thinking, involves inspiration, which is, involves a kind of supernatural connection between God's ideas and their verbal expression in the minds of the individual authors. It was his inspired thought. He inspired the thoughts and the understanding and they begin to write it down faithfully. Friends, I really do believe that the Bible is inspired. And, and I will say it this way. That the Bible is inspired. It is authoritative. It is trustworthy and truthful. And it is the writing and the collections of writing that God wanted us to have. If he wanted other things included, he would have made sure other things got included. If he wanted some of it left out he would have left out some of what we have. But he didn't. We have the book, the words of God. L look at how uh, Peter himself articulates this. Second Peter 1 says this, For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. And we, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice that came from heaven saying, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. So pay a close, and close attention to what they wrote. For their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Friends, the Holy Spirit still inspires people. The Holy Spirit wants to lead and guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit wants to have a relationship with you that when you're reading the words of God, he will inspire the thoughts in your mind to think correctly about the text that you're reading. When I say you can hear the voice of the Lord and the Lord wants to lead and guide you, I'm not saying that he's going to speak audibly to you. I'm almost 41 years old. I've been following Jesus since I was like three and four and five years old. I have never heard the audible voice of God. But most often, he will inspire thoughts in my mind that bear witness within me to what I know is true in God's word. And I know that the Lord is speaking. He's inspiring thoughts and concepts and if you're waiting for the Lord to speak in an audible voice to you let me know when it happens that's cool but until that time 
recognize that the Lord wants to inspire you and your thoughts and those thoughts line up with the word of God. If they don't line up with the word of God, you had an inspired thought from somewhere else. Which is why the battlefield of your mind and how you think is so important to the transformation of your faith. The Holy Spirit was inspiring the writers to include this story about a woman who came to worship Jesus, whose worship was preparation pointing towards the purpose of what he would do next. This is a story about a woman who was passionate in her love for Jesus. This is a story where what we read today is a contrast between a worshiper and a betrayer. Notice the difference between the two, the actions of the two, the posture and the heart between the two. One was abandoning and giving all to Jesus. The other was looking for an opportunity to gain for them own selves and betray Jesus. The contrast holds for you and me. Are you a worshiper or are you betraying your faith? Do you worship the Lord with passion? Or do you stand idly by with criticism in your heart while others worship? There's a contrast at play for us. Now, when I talk about passion, I'm talking about expressing adoration and affection. Let me put it in a context that most of us will understand. Maybe not all of us, but most of us. The most treasured human relationship that we are given in this life is a relationship between a husband and a wife. Within the relationship between a husband and a wife, there is supposed to be passion. Expressed adoration and affection. But often relationships begin to dry and die when they no longer are fueling the passion they were always meant to be fueling. One of the ways that uh, you're able to do this is when you're able to communicate with your spouse, what is it that communicates love to them? What is it that, that when you do it, when you say it, when you, when, when you approach it that way, it, it fuels a response from you or them to create an affection for one another. This element of, it's meant to be a picture of our loving relationship with God. What, what is it that, that here's, you know what I love is when my wife says, hey, would you do this, this, and this? That would help me feel loved this week. I'm in. I'm in on that. Let me, let me, what else might I do, ma'am? How might else I might fuel that passion? In fact, when you're, when you're first beginning a dating relationship, you go out of your way to be affectionate. You go out of your way to express your emotion and your love and your adoration. You go out of your way to verbally communicate and physically demonstrate the affection that you have for them. And that's meant to be an ongoing thing that we do. I, when I do premarital coaching with couples, I talk about how um, as a man, the man needs shared activity to do some things. And that friendship relationship is something that fuels the passion that they have for the marriage and that relationship. For a woman, they need to be treasured and adored. They need more affection than what you think that they need. I'll say it another way. Looking around the room to make sure people uh, appropriately use children's ministry like we have available for them so that we can have adult conversations every once in a while. Our kids' ministry is fantastic. You should use it, I promise. Some of you, the gift of passion in your marriage is fueled when a husband stops being a prude with his emotions and expressions and affection and when a woman responds without being physically prude. That's where passion is fueled. It looks different in every season of life. 
but that's the way God designed it. The very thing that you need to receive, you have to give what they need, which fuels what they long for, that allows them to respond in the thing that you need. Because it is always better to give than to receive. Now let's make spiritual application. When was the last time you had an expressed moment of passion for Jesus? When my friends and I were uh, in high school and college, we we talk about power moments and dating relationships. You got to have a power moment. Like my friend had a power moment one time, uh, a passionate power moment where he stopped all of traffic stopped the car, literally all the traffic, quickly jumped out with a single rose to the girl that was following behind him in the other car, and he gave her a rose just to demonstrate expressively and extravagantly his desire and passion for her and the relationship. Then hopped back in the car and drove away. Everyone was talking about it. That was a power moment. When was the last moment of expressed adoration and abandonment you've had for Jesus? What's your passion level for him? Now, I said earlier, one of the things that helps in a marriage relationship is when you're able to communicate what is passion, what is love. How do you want to be loved? If you can't communicate that to your spouse, it's a guessing game and they're not going to get it right. You got to communicate it. You know what I love about Jesus and God? He tells us exactly what passion for King Jesus looks like in our allegiance for him. You want to know what it looks like? Passionate expression looks like this. Psalms 47.1. Come everyone, clap your hands, shout to God with joyful praise. That's what it looks like to God. It looks like Psalms 134 verse 2. Lift your hands towards the sanctuary and praise the Lord. Lamentations 3.41, lift up your hearts and hands to God in heaven and say. Psalms 150 verse 4, praise him with the tambourine and dancing. Praise him with strings and flutes. Psalms 96 and verse 1, sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Psalms 33.3, sing a new song of praise to him. Play skillfully on the harp and sing with joy. That's why we don't let anybody who thinks they're good at the guitar just come up and play the guitar. We're going to make sure you've got some skill to help lead the people of God in worship. That's why we use instruments. This is why we sing. This is why we clap. This is why we lift our hands. Psalm 95 and verse 6, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Give me New Testament, pastor. Great. Psalm, 1 Timothy 2 verse 8. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands folded reverently. Is that what your Bible says? I want men everywhere to lift up their hands free from anger and controversy. Where? Where should men do that? In every place of worship. That's where you should do it. But that wasn't my upbringing, Pastor. I don't think Paul cares. That's not my personality, Pastor. I don't think God cares. I'm a little uncomfortable. That's the point. Because we're called to deny ourselves and tape up our cross, not look for comfortable, convenient ways to follow God. Romans 12.1. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies, clapping your hands, kneeling, lifting your hands, singing aloud, shouting, dancing. What is that? Those are all done with your open book test. Those are all done with your very good. I want you to offer your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he finds acceptable. This is truly the way 
To what? To worship him. What does passion for Jesus look like? What is the passion that fuels the love for God look like? What is passion that fuels, don't miss this, the fidelity of your faith look like? It looks like clapping. It looks like singing. It looks like lifting your hands. It looks like bowing down. It looks like dancing. It looks like singing a song to the Lord, your own song, and a song's recorded and printed on screens. It's about expressions of worship. And I love that Paul says it. Every man ought to be lifting his hands in worship to the Lord. Because so goes the relationship of God with men, so goes the church. So goes a man's relationship in the home, so goes the family. As men go, so goes the family, so goes society, and so goes the church. Don't believe me? Just start Googling some of the statistics. I wish men everywhere would lay down their pride and instead would sing songs of praise to God and lift their hands and worship to God. Because the passion that you need in your marriage is found in the practicing arena of passion for Jesus who is king, who is worthy of it all. And your worship will fuel and fan the flame of your fidelity and allegiance to Jesus or your lack of passion for Jesus will fuel your infidelity in your faith. Friends, passionate adoration is an expression of abundant grace and mercy we've received. This is truly the way to worship him. Why? Because of all he has done for you, Romans says. Friends, it was an adoration and an expression of abundant grace and mercy that this woman did. She came to worship at the feet of Jesus to prepare him room in her own life and heart to give and make ready all that he was about to go do. That perfume that she used was a year's worth of wages. Some of you don't love Jesus enough to return 10% to him. And here was this woman giving a full year's worth of wage to him saying, God, you're worthy of that. The perfume was used. It was gone in a moment. It wasn't like an investment in something that would be ongoing. It was just about an extravagant act in the moment. A moment of passion. And a moment that surely brought some emotion. Well, we're not supposed to be emotional, Pastor. Well, some of you need to remember you've got some. The perfume was worth a year's wage. Luke 7, in his, Luke in his gospel records this story and says that the reason she was worshiping so much, the reason she was willing to be extravagant and expressive in her worship was because she had been forgiven of so much. Most of you don't worship because you think you're good enough to get to heaven on your own. You think your behavior will help you out and you're not as bad as so-and-so, so you'll be all right. Friends, listen, on your best day, without the cross and forgiveness of Jesus, you and Hitler are damned for the same judgment and punishment. Well, I'm not that bad. Your name is either in the book of life or it ain't in the book of life. And the only way to get your name in the book of life is to recognize the lamb that was slain, take his blood, apply it to your life, and skip over the judgment of death and experience eternal life. That's the only way. And so when you realize that it's not good people that go to heaven, but it is forgiven people who spend eternity with God in heaven, all of a sudden you realize, though my sins were like scarlet, he washed them white as snow. Because I was a liar, I was a manipulator, I was a cheater, I was an addict, I was abound in my own pride, and I refused to do anything anybody wanted me to do, because I'm my own man. See, your passionate adoration for God is an expression of the awareness of the abundant grace and mercy you've been received. Billy Graham said it like this, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you everything you have. Friends, Jesus is worth your passionate allegiance, abandoning it all for him. That's the point of the story. That's the point of what she was doing. It, it perhaps 
What one author, I think it, it, it's Luke and John both who I, I articulate this, that the woman giving the oil, the woman giving the perfume was a woman who came from a background that was less than reputable. She was a lady of the night. No doubt the money to buy the perfume came from her selling her body. And not only selling her body, it was the way in which, please, without, I'm just, that's the way in which she refreshed so she can make more money. To wipe away the stench of sin so that she could be ready to make more money. It was her old way of life. It was her old way of living. It was her old pattern of making herself acceptable to walk around the streets and not get sneered at, laughed at, and jeered at. It was her way of trying to do some things. Friends, your worship in passionate abandonment and extravagance to Jesus is not about anything other than burning the ships behind you and saying, I'm not going back to my old life. Some of you haven't taken a step of affection to Jesus and getting water baptized because you're hoping that maybe just maybe you can live the double life. Be a little in the world and a little bit in church. A little bit of the way you want to live and a little bit like church. You're hoping you can still go get drunk on St. Patrick's Day and still stand before God holy and clean and righteous because maybe just maybe I can live my life how I want and get a little bit of Jesus to help me in the process. Some of us show up to church like this is your drug dealer where your, your life has been so bad you just need a spiritual fix because all hell broke loose the last six weeks before you came to get your last fix and you just need another quick fix to get a hit and get better rather than being with the people of God and recognizing your passion and your purpose is being fueled and fanned and expressing your worship to God because you have lost your passion you've never had your passion when was the last time you got uncomfortable taking a step beyond your comfort zone in worship to Jesus when was the last time you deleted some contacts out of your phone because those people only make you live like hell act like hell and think like hell but I might want to go back to that life See, when you pour out all that you have to say yes to Jesus, you are saying goodbye to the way of life that used to be. This woman was saying, no, I'm giving it all. I surrender all. It's all him and nothing else. It's only Jesus. I'm not serving money. I'm not serving fame. I'm not serving notoriety. I'm not serving my own way. I'm reorienting my entire life to forsake and follow and this is my reasonable act of worship passion for Jesus fuels your fidelity and allegiance to Jesus as king while she was being passionate Judas was being pragmatic When, when she was giving an expensive gift, he was taking money to betray Jesus. He sat back and said, what a waste. How ridiculous does she look right now? Doesn't she know that we could have like sold this perfume instead of wasting it on Jesus we could have sold this perfume and like taken care of the poor sounds really noble doesn't it the problem was his heart had already been polluted with lack of passion see pragmatism can sound like good stewardship but unless your pragmatism is superseded and fueled by your passionate worship you will become critical you will become suspicious of other people and you will try to manipulate God to be it on your terms. See, pragmatism puts you back in control of your circumstances and outcomes. But worship requires surrender on your part to begin with. Well, if they'll sing the right songs, then I'll lift my hands. No, you won't. Because you're trying to manipulate God to have God on your terms. But surrender isn't manipulation. Surrender is surrender. 
Pragmatism is a religious cloak that many people wear, manipulating results because of the seed of suspicion is already present. Negative suspicion of other people, other people's worship, other people's adoration, other people's lives of faith, the suspicion and criticism that you have in your heart will only lead you to a betrayal in the name of pragmatism. See, you can either feed your holy passion and affection for God, or you can use pragmatism as an excuse to not abandon and worship God. Passion is costly. Oh, it costs you something to be passionate. Pragmatism feels safe in the moment, but ultimately... It costs you your soul. It costs you something. What happened to Judas? His pragmatism led him to betray. You keep reading the story. His betrayal led him to a moment of immense guilt and shame that he never recovered from. His shame led him to take his own life in suicide. Shame will get you to start being suspicious of other people's motives. Do they not know how bad they sing? I can't believe they're singing that loud. Don't, they're, not, they're not doing that right. This church is just about emotional manipulation. They're just trying to get me to do stuff. No, I don't want to do it. Those worship songs that they sing, don't they know those people wrote those songs so they can make money? Those people who wrote those songs, don't, don't they know that th- that music is just trying to manipulate an emotional response to in a moment? Show me a song that doesn't move you emotionally and I'll show you a trashy song. Music is meant to move us to engage in a way that we were created to engage. We're not ruled and demanding emotion. It's not the point but I'm not going to sit back pragmatically and be critical and start looking for the wrong opportunity. Judas was looking, but he was looking for the wrong opportunity. Instead of an opportunity to be passionate towards Jesus, he was looking for an opportunity to be pragmatic and try to control Jesus to get him to do what he wanted. Matthew 25, he says it really well. How much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? They gave him 30 pieces of silver. And from that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity. Friends, when your passion diminishes, it's only a matter of time that you start chasing the wrong opportunities. They say the best defense is a good offense. If you want to make sure your heart doesn't grow critical and cold, The best thing to do is start taking steps of passionate expressions and abandonment in your worship. Fuel your fidelity to Jesus or you'll end up being and living in infidelity to your faith in Jesus. What would it cost you? Is... Is your comfort in worship worth, is it worth potentially walking down a road of betraying your faith to God? Is it worth it? Is that the price for you? Instead of being suspicious, Judas should have been praising. He should have been joining in and preparing Jesus. When you read the gospel accounts, you'll see not all of them were as gracious as Matthew. Most of the gospel writers say it was Judas who piped up saying, we could have used this money to feed the poor. Judas didn't give a rip about the poor. Judas was stealing money from money donated to the ministry. And his shame and his stealing heart had already grown pragmatic and cold. He wasn't about Jesus. He was about himself. 
if you're trying to do Christianity on your terms and love God based on what you think is an expression of God, you're missing the point because God is pretty clear what worship looks like to him. Jesus says, why are you criticizing, Judas? The word criticism means why are you making problem and trouble out of nothing? Recently in our in the U.S., there was uh, what people are referring to as a revival that broke up in Asbury at a college. And boy, the pragmatic people came out of the woodwork. Everybody was taken to social media and platforms trying to say, is this really revival? And is God really moving? And they all had their opinions. There were some people who did that. They had a pastor's heart and they were trying to lead their people to respond appropriately. And I'm, I'm fine with that. But the majority of the people that were talking about Asbury were trying to decide, is this of God or is it not of God? Is this an emotionalism or is it a genuine move of God? The problem was they were being pragmatic and their wood was wet and they had no passion themselves. Where if the fire showed up, they wouldn't have been able to tell if it was God or not. Friends, you can sit back and criticize people who worship and express worship and follow in love with Jesus and give him their adoration. You can criticize, but it's only a matter of time before that criticism grows to pragmatism and you betray your faith too. We will fuel our passion and our fidelity for Jesus through our worship. What does it look like to be faithful to Jesus it looks like people who are willing to say God I'm, I'm going to take a step today in worship because you said I'm to clap our hands so Lord that's how you want to be loved today I'm going to clap my hands for the first time because you said your word you want us to sing I don't sing real good but I'm going to sing loud enough so at least I can hear it and I'm going to sing a song to you today God because that's what love looks like to you that's your love language God and I want to fuel my fidelity in you and not run the risk of living infidelity in you. I'm going to bow before you, Lord. I'm going to lift my hands in praise. Sing a song to you today. Pastor, I'm not really comfortable with my hands up. You can fuel your passion for God or not. We love him his way, not our way. Oh, how I long for men everywhere to lift their hands and say, Jesus, you're worthy. Well, which, which expression? Is it a checklist? Do I lift my hands? Do I kneel? Do I clap? Do I sing? Do I do this? What's the order? How do I... What is the Lord inspiring in your heart today? That's what he wants from you today. Some weeks I kneel. Some weeks I stand. Some weeks I sing louder than others. Some weeks my hands are up higher than others. Some weeks I clap more than I... Than other. Which one is it, Pastor? It's all of them. That's what one. Well, I'm just going to wait until they tell me to lift my hands. Then I'll lift... No, you won't. We're not here to manipulate you. You make a decision on your own. It's your heart's affection for Jesus not ours you, you can't have my worship it's his you, you gotta go get your own you gotta get your own Lord that's what we long for today to be a people willing to respond to your name to, to be a people God that would worship you with all of our hearts abandoned to give you our love poured out before you to be willing to take a step of consecration rather than stay in our comfort zone lord you always meet us at our moment of faith you always meet us at the moment where we're willing to step out the moment where we're willing to take it a little bit further out of our comfort zone week in and week out lord we we want to fuel our passion for you jesus we want all of who you are, Jesus. Jesus, you're the king 
of it all. Lord, we, we don't have to be told what to do because it's in our hearts that cry out for worship to you. It's in our hearts that says, God, we want to pour out an alabaster jar before you, God. It's our hearts that say we want to offer our life of adoration, of worship, of praise to you. God, it's, it's you and you alone. Lord, oh, that we would lift our hands and sing a song. Oh, that we would stand in your presence and honor you. Oh, that we would bow before you, the maker of heaven and earth. Oh, that we would love you, God, the way you're worthy of being loved. You're worthy, Jesus. You're the king. You're the king. We honor you, Lord. Lifted high, yeah. Christ our King, Some of you, some of you, the Lord's kind of whispered your heart. I want you to stand. I want you to kneel. I want you to lift your hands. I want you to join in. And you're waiting for permission. Ready, go. It's about your response to him. It's about your love for him. What's your love look like? This is the moment. This is the time. This is the place. The safest place in the world to practice your adoration and worship is here and now. What is he inspiring? What is he asking of you? What is the jar that you have to pour out today? It's your worship, not mine. standing would you stand for just a minute thank you Lord forever 
I thank you that your word says that our worship is like a sweet-smelling fragrance in your nostrils. So, Lord, as we, your people, take steps out of what we would consider our own comfort zone to stand, to sing, to lift our hands, to clap, to worship you with the expressions that biblically you've said are yours, your love language, O Lord. May it be a pleasing sound. May it fuel a passion and love for you, Jesus, more than a love for anything else. Lord, would you receive honor, glory, and praise as we take steps of adoration for you. Lord, do something in our hearts. Transform us. Transform us, Lord. Lord, let us be a passionate people in pursuit of your presence. Without apology, without shame, without worry of ridicule or judgment or criticism. Lord, let us be people of complete abandon to you. Because we've been forgiven so much.